do a little practice, to, a little meditation practice together. And there are also a number of people watching this on the live stream. Um, uh, and uh, maybe we'll sing a few songs, I'm told, <laughs> before the official start. That's not my department, actually. <laughs> so I'm assuming uh, between the people in this room and we're not happy with the sound. And some of the people watching on the live stream that some may be quite new to meditation practice. Is that true for you all? Some people are not largely experienced in mindfulness practice, good. So um, in that context, uh, throughout the day, we'll, and certainly throughout the morning, I'll be offering um, pretty explicit guidance in terms of different aspects of meditation practice concentration, mindfulness, and loving kindness, and we'll get a chance to practice together. So to begin with, for this introduction, pre-beginning, sitting, before we sing, um, if you could just sit comfortably. One of the crucial elements in meditation practice, one of the guiding principles is balance. And it's believed that the things that we seek, insight, understanding, heartfulness, compassion, will come, well, they will emerge, these qualities will emerge if our system comes into greater balance. So instead of our usual kind of grabby mentality, like I've got to have an insight by five, you know, maybe even by four, that would be better. Um, the work is more around balance. So it's said that a certain amount of balance is expressed right away in our posture. See if you can sit straight without having your back be rigid or uptight. So you're relaxed and at ease, but not so relaxed that you're like way slumped over and nearly bound to fall asleep. People commonly fall asleep anyway, but... We don't need to set the stage so that it's almost definitely going to happen. So you want some energy in your body, but also being relaxed. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. If your eyes are open, you can just find a spot in front of you to rest your gaze, let it go. And I'm going to guide you through the most common foundational exercise in meditation from which many other styles and techniques and methods grow. And that is just to sit and feel your breath. Feel the actual sensations of your in and out breath. But before we get to that, we commonly start just by listening to sound. Sound of my voice or other sounds. It's like the sounds wash through you. You make a really big space. So even though, of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others, 
We don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let them wash through you. And then bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath. In this system, it's the normal natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. Just find an area where the breath is clearest for you, where it's strongest the nostrils, the chest, or the abdomen, whatever it might be. Bring your attention there and rest. See if you can feel one breath. And then the next. If you like, you can make a very quiet mental notation of in, out, or rising, falling, to help support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet. that your attention really can rest in feeling the breath. Just one breath. And if you find your attention has slipped off, or you've fallen asleep, don't worry about it. See if you can gently let go of whatever has taken you away, and simply bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath.
you feel ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you. So maybe we'll sing a song and then Rhonda can actually uh, officially begin. Okay, so let's start with a song called Breathe In, Breathe Out. <laughs> it goes with the wonderful practice that Sharon just led. And I learned the song from Pamela Siegel, who is with Courage, to Renew Courage for Renewal. It goes like this. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. You want to repeat that? <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Here comes the next part. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. And then breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Beautiful, huh? All right. <laughs> now the trick with kids is you make the hand motions great big when you sing loudly and nice and small when you sing softly. It's a good way to help make it more interesting. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Will I ever get that tune out of my head when I'm teaching? It's <laughs> a big question now. Welcome everyone. My name is Rhonda Rose. I'm a volunteer at New York Insight. It is my honor to introduce our two speakers today in this book, Developing Mindfulness for Children, a workshop for adults, Sharon Salzberg and Susan Heiser-Greenland. As we all know, Sharon Salzberg is the co-founder of the Innocent Meditation Society in Yarnett, Massachusetts. And she's been a student of meditation since 1971. Her latest book is on the New York Times bestseller list, Real Happiness, The Power of Meditation. She's also the author of Course of Kindness, Faith, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience, and Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Also today with us, Susan Kaiser Greenland. She's a former corporate attorney who developed the Inner Kids Mindful Awareness Program for Children, Teens, and Families. And she's done research with UCLA and it's published in the Journal of Applied School Psychology. Susan is author of The Mindful Child How to Help Your Kids Manage Stress and Become Happier, Kinder, and More Compassionate. She teaches children, parents, and professionals around the world and consults with various organizations on teaching mindful awareness in age appropriate and in a secular manner. With her husband Seth Greenland, she co-founded the Mindfulness Together Foundation, formerly the Inner Kids Foundation. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children. I'd just like to introduce the volunteers today, uh, Valerie, Miriam, and Peter, as well as Empika and Justin. You know, um, New York Insight is a volunteer organization. Uh, today there will be books on sale in the back. Two books, one by um, Sharon, Real Happiness, 
and also one by Susan, mindful child. Just in terms of etiquette, and also uh, we're live streaming today, so please turn your phones off in the off mode, not in silence, because uh, they could be interfering with the signals. is um, to build sounding community. Uh, introduce yourself to one or two people next to you, and then we'll begin the day. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Um, so, this is uh, moving. I have a movable mic. That's okay right now. I, uh, this is our plan. Uh, so far. Um, I will do most of the speaking and guided meditations this morning. Susan will maybe sing again, I don't know, and, and get a chance to speak some. Uh, and uh, <laughs> she will do uh, most of the afternoon, and I will get a chance to speak some. And sing? <laughs> I can sing. I don't lead singing. <laughs> but I'm happy to sing along. <laughs> um, and that way, whatever I speak about in the morning and whatever practices we do together uh, will be kind of a platform for uh, this expression into um, manifestations and tools and skills for different age groups of, of kids and, and so on. 
the plan we have is to have a lunch break at about, uh, let's see, let's say noon or 12, 15, somewhere in that arena, um, lasting about an hour and a half, but because that will be too long for some of you who perhaps have brought your lunch, hopefully that will include some walking meditation, uh, which I'll give suggestions for. And we're gonna have a sitting, an optional sitting, half an hour before we officially resume in the afternoon. So for those of you who'd like to come in and, and do that half hour sitting, that would be great as well. So that should give some flexibility. I don't know how many of you are new to New York Insight. The elevators are notoriously slow. So I wanted to give enough time so people aren't frantic if they're uh, going out to a restaurant and if things are kind of slow. All right, why not? <laughs> I think that's all right. I think that's a little close. <laughs> Thank you. How's that? Okay, good. So I was very excited for this day. Um, I don't have that much experience uh, working with children, some, a uh, tiny amount really, but it's been extraordinary. Uh, I do have a goddaughter who's 13 now. She's been my goddaughter since she was four when she chose me. And uh, one of my common stories about her um, was when she was around nine or so, she started sending me email um, through her mother. You know, she would dictate the email. And uh, her mom would write it and send it to me. So this was the first email I got. I've been thinking about things, and I wonder if you can help me out. Where did the universe come from? <laughs> Where does love come from? Where does space come from? And do love and space have anything to do with one another? Please tell me everything you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but fortunately, there is a quotation from the Buddha, which I was quite familiar with, talking about love and space. And that was the Buddha's invitation to develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. So that if somebody were throwing paint around, standing in the middle of this room, throwing paint around in the air, there's nothing in this space that's gonna be marred or ruined by that, by that paint. Develop a mind so filled with love, it resembles space. That open and unconfined and free. So I wrote some version of that to her. I said, you know, this is a quotation from the Buddha and about love and space. And, um, and then I tried to say in as appropriate a language as I could, something about how you know, 
we can have our minds be really, really, really big, like the sky. And then all the different things that happen are more like clouds going through. Or we can be like a sponge. And maybe somebody says something hurtful to us and we like suck it in. And it fills every part of our being and we get all soggy and gooky. And so I wrote some version of that to her. And then I didn't hear from her again for a while. <laughs> like a month. But then like a month later, her mother wrote to me and said that Willow, that's my goddaughter, had gotten into an argument with her younger sister and Willow was going around the house muttering, I am like the sky, I am not a sponge. I am like the sky, I am not a sponge. And I wasn't sure about that, but and some of you maybe would have some commentary, but her mother was thrilled. She said, she's working it. You know, she's working to make it real. And so um, with my acquaintance with, with her and her younger sister and... Uh, who just did, her sister's eight now, and uh, they just went to see some movie called something like Mao's Last Dance or something. I don't know the name of the movie. Something about Mao Zedong. And afterwards, um, her younger sister said, the eight-year-old said, you know, he wasn't a bad man. He had some bad thoughts, and he took them too seriously. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> You know, so I am so touched by the remarkable wisdom, potential, and extraordinary capacity uh, within children for understanding and for connection and for love. And so I'm just like so delighted to, to be part of this day. So what I want to talk about and have us practice together are really the foundational skills of meditation, which we now find translated into kid language and, uh, you know, for use in many, many, many different kinds of clinical settings and um, all kinds of ways these fundamental teachings and skills are being used and tested and explored in a, a tremendous number of arenas. Now, I'm also of the generation where I went to India to learn how to meditate in 1970, and I began my meditation practice in January of 1971. So that was a good long time ago. And um, I came back, finally, in 1974. And I would be at a party or some social situation and somebody would say to me like what do you do and I'd say I teach meditation and they would kind of go oh and sort of sidle away like that's really weird whereas now all these years later the most common response I get even you know like coming back into the country through immigration and all kinds of places People say, what do you do? I say, I teach meditation. And the most common response I get is, I'm so stressed out. I could really use some of that. Although my favorite response, which I also hear, is, my partner should really meet you. <laughs> they could really benefit from that. You know, so I've seen a huge transition 
in terms of just the kind of acceptability of the notion of meditation practice. Um, you know, it's not seen as, uh, in most contexts as so esoteric and strange, although the language certainly needs to be adjusted uh, according to, to context. So from the very beginning of my own acquaintance with meditation practice, I thought of it as a skills training, which is really what it is. It doesn't need to be tied to any kind of belief system or dogma or um, cosmology or orientation toward life. It's a skills training. First of all, in concentration. Most of us experience ourselves as, at least in some arenas of life, fairly scattered or distracted. And you don't need to be an experienced meditator to know that. We sit down to think something through and we are gone pretty quickly. Our minds jump to the past and we go over and over and over something. Our minds jump to the future. And often with some anxiety, we create a world that has not happened and may never happen. And we just have a sense of disconnection from the present moment because our energy is all over the place. This also um, is said to produce a kind of fragmentation. You know, th there's a, a lack of settledness or centeredness. It's a lot of agitation. It's a lot of energy waste. You know, the kind of energy that we could capture and actually utilize is sort of flung all over the place. And so the main skills training in concentration is gathering that energy, gathering our scattered attention. Another way of talking about meditation is all about attention. It's all attention training in one way or another. So the first training is in steadying our attention. Hello. <gasps> Yes, <laughs> that's concentration. It's just steadying. So it doesn't mean we take this really wild energy and we kind of try to squeeze it down and hold it, which would be a lack of balance, right? It's more just this shepherding, this gathering of our attention, of our energy, so that it becomes more settled. And over time, this is what we actually discover. Not right away, of course. And in fact, the actual skills training is often running counter to some of our very strong conditioning. So for example, when I went to India to learn how to meditate, it took about three months to find just the sort of situation I was looking for because I wasn't really interested in the philosophy that much. I wasn't interested in uh, rejecting a faith tradition or adopting a new one or anything like that. I wanted to know what the practical, pragmatic tools might be that might help me be a happier person. And it took that three-month period to find just the kind of situation I was looking for. And when I actually did, it was in the context of an intensive 10-day retreat. So I walked into that monastery never having meditated before for one single second in my life. 
And the very first instruction I heard was just what we did right now. Sit down and feel your breath. And I was really kind of upset. I thought, feel my breath. And I came all the way to India. Where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to transform my mind and change my whole life? I'll feel my breath. And then I thought, how hard can this be? I was like, ha! It wasn't that easy. I thought, oh, what will it be? Like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders? And to my absolute shock, it was like one <laughs> or two. I don't know what your experience just was in that you know, short sitting we did, but it's pretty common. One breath, two breaths, maybe four breaths, and we're gone. And that's just the habit of the mind. But there comes an extraordinary moment when we kind of come to and realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath. That is considered the critical moment of the practice because in that moment, instead of chastising ourselves and blaming ourselves and feeling like a failure, we practice letting go, what one of my teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. We practice letting go, and with enormous kindness toward ourselves, we begin again. No blame, no rancor, no harshness. We practice letting go, we practice beginning again. That's the essence of the meditative process right there. But of course, you know, we tend to be conditioned in such a way that we think, well, it was only three breaths today, it'll be five tomorrow. It'll be 18 the next day, whatever it is. But that's not really the point. The point is that moment of starting over. And everything that happens, even if not spoken, everything we're learning in that moment, we can begin again. All is not lost. This is how learning happens, not through blame, not through anger. We have a capacity, look at that, to start over. So many things happen in that moment. So concentration is the art of gathering our attention around an object and beginning again, and beginning again, and beginning again. We might choose any object, and all kinds of different systems will use different objects. A sound, an image, a prayer, a sensation in the body, and very commonly the feeling of the breath. Because as one of my first teachers said, the breath is very portable. We practice training to settle, to return to that sensation, the actual sensation of the breath, and we can take it anywhere. Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we have this resource that is available to us. So that's the first skill of, of meditation. The second is that now very famous word, mindfulness, which can mean lots of different things. One thing it means is a quality of awareness that 
has us recognize what's happening in the moment. You know, we're feeling a certain sensation, we're feeling a certain emotion. We hear a sound, but with certain qualities in how we relate to that experience. So before I go on, I'll turn things over to Susan so she can uh, read us our story. <laughs> and uh, then I'll speak again just briefly and uh, we'll get a chance to sit again. Oh, do you have to move this oh, back and forth? Thank you for that. You can sing too if you want. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rhonda. Wow, that was beautiful, Sharon. Thank you. It really was. I mean, Sharon has a way of putting all of this so simply and so clearly, and I just am so happy to be here with Sharon today, and so thank you for that. And, and to Ambika for all the work she did to put this together, and Rhonda and the rest of the people here at Insight, um, I'm New York Insight. I'm just so, so appreciative. So thank you. I have a quick question, though. How many, I know Sharon was asking this at the beginning, but now we have most everybody here, everybody here. And please know that uh, we have, we are really excited about anybody who's brand new to meditation. So can you let us know who's brand new to meditation today? That's fantastic. That's fantastic. How about people who have practiced uh, three months or less? That's fantastic, too. Um, two years or less? That's great. Thank you. Two years or more? Fantastic. Fantastic. So that gives us a sense, but um, it makes me so, so happy that you're here and so happy that Sharon is sharing this time with us so that she can help. And then one last thing that will help with this afternoon. How many people are primarily interested in activities and games involving children under the age of second grade. Okay, how about third grade through fifth grade? Great, how about middle school age? Okay, and how about teenage? Great, okay, so, and then how about people who would be interested in multiple levels? <laughs> okay. Because what we try to do is we try to, in the afternoon, we'll try to break up in a few groups so that people can, there's age-appropriate adaptations of these very simple activities so that you can work with people in the same age group. So that gives me a sense of how to plan that for the afternoon. Um, all right, so I would like to make a suggestion that we make to children, which is one way of we like stealth mindfulness. <laughs> and stealth mindfulness is we don't always need to be saying to the kids, be mindful, be mindful, be mindful. We just describe a quality that may bring a little bit more awareness to your actions, your relationships, or what's happening inside or outside of you. And then we encourage the children to do that. And one thing we find very useful is moving in slow motion. Moving a little more slowly than you might otherwise helps bring a deliberate, deliberateness to one's actions. Even saying slow motion to young children can sometimes be a little tough for them to understand. So there's this really great book. It's Eric Carle's book. It's called Slowly, Slowly, Slowly Said the Sloth. And, <laughs> 
And so one way to tell kids to be in slow motion is say, be like a sloth. And we describe what that is in this book. But I'm going to have to ask you to help me, which is every time I say the word slowly, 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 I want you to move one arm slowly, slowly, slowly. OK, you ready? All right. What's that? Um, let's see. Okay, so it's slowly, 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 said the sloth by Eric Carle. Slowly, 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 a sloth crawled along a branch of a tree. Slowly, 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 the sloth ate a leaf. Slowly, 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 the sloth fell asleep. Slowly, 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 the sloth woke up. All day long, the sloth hung upside down in the tree. All night long, the sloth hung upside down in the tree. Even when it rained, the sloth hung upside down in the tree. Why are you so slow, asked the howler monkey one day, but the sloth didn't answer. Why are you so quiet, the caiman asked, but the sloth didn't answer. Why are you so boring, the anteater asked, but the sloth didn't answer. Tell me, said the jaguar, why are you so lazy? Do you think the sloth is lazy just because he moves slowly? I don't think so. The sloth thought and thought and thought for a long, long time. Finally, the sloth replied, it is true that I am slow, quiet, and boring. I am lackadaisical, I dawdle, and I dilly-dally. I am also unflappable, languid, stoic, impassive, sluggish, lethargic, placid, calm, mellow, laid-back, and, well, slothful. I am relaxed and tranquil, and I like to live in peace, but I am not lazy. Then the sloth yawned and said, that's just how I am. I like to do things, here we go, slowly, slowly, slowly. And so for the rest of the day, if we can be like sloths and just move a little more slowly than usual. Did you want to sing one song before? Please. Okay, so we're going to sing another song before we go. Before uh, I'm going to move down there and so I have a better uh, view of Sharon. So the song we're going to sing is Follow the Light Within, and I learned it at the Ojai Foundation in California. It goes like this. In hand motions, as you can probably tell, I do a lot of them. They're useful with kids. So this one is we're following with that. <laughs> Sharon's going to be singing these songs like from now on. Follow the light within. Follow the light within. It's your heart that's telling you where is your freedom. Follow the light within. We're going to sing it three times. Follow the light within. Follow the light within. It's your heart that's telling you where is your freedom. Follow the light within, two more times. Follow the light within, 
Follow the light within. It's your heart that's telling you where is your freedom. Follow the light within. Last time. Follow the light within. Follow the light within. It's your heart that's telling you where is your freedom. Follow the light within. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also going to suggest that if you need a break, you you know, you please just go because uh, we will take a, a short break in the morning. But given how many people there are, uh, it'll probably not be a short break if we all try to stand up at once, go to the bathroom and get tea. <laughs> so. Okay, mindfulness, the word of um, the hour. <laughs> you could say there are a few different parts, ooh, a few different aspects of mindfulness. Um, one is simply knowing what our experience is, that you know, we feel this glass and instead of being completely lost in thought, disconnected, unaware, we're actually in touch with the feeling. And basic mindfulness training uses the body a lot, uses touch sensation a lot, because it's one of the easiest ways to go a little deeper and to perceive different levels. So, for example, uh, if I were holding this glass and you asked me what I was feeling, I could say quite correctly and rather glibly, I'm feeling the glass. And that's true. And we like that. That is conventional, consensual reality. If I was holding this and you said to me, what are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling the lampshade. Everyone would worry about me, right? because we have agreed to call this a glass. But there's a certain stagnation to that perception, because I'd call it a glass yesterday, I'd call it a glass today, I'd call it a glass tomorrow. Whereas if you asked me what I was feeling, and I just kind of went to another level, and I said hardness, coldness, throbbing, vibration... That's also true, and it brings me right to this world of constant change. So in very simple ways like that, we try to be in touch with our experience. Maybe not, the, um, not always. I mean, we never forget that it's a glass. That's an important point, too. Uh, sometimes people think mindfulness means losing common sense. When I was practicing at first in India, I was living in this little village in uh, northern India called Bodhgaya, which is the town that's grown up around the tree the Buddha is said to have been sitting under when he became enlightened. And in those days, I think it's quite the metropolis now, relatively speaking, but in those days it was a really tiny little town with extraordinary temples and shrines and stuff, but nothing, you know, like no, a couple of tea stores or something, but 
Um, and uh, the place uh, uh, we were living was this Burmese, like vihara, like sort of monastery, um, a little distance outside of the main part of town. And and people always used to, we used to walk to town. And so a very, very common question that I would hear my teachers asked all the time was, if I'm walking to town, and there was an elephant that lived in town, um, who would sometimes be walking down the road. And so the question was, if I'm walking to town and the elephant's coming toward me, do I get out of the way? Or do I just mindfully notice that the elephant is coming toward me and, you know, get crushed? And it was like, huh. Well, get out of the way. <laughs> And I hear, you know, I actually hear the m- more modern version of that question quite a lot. If I'm sitting and I hear the smoke alarm go off, do I just notice hearing? Or do I get up? I think, well, getting up is a good idea. You know, so we never forget that it's a glass, but we also open to other levels of the experience, which aren't so condensed, consolidated, seemingly solid. So even very simple things like holding a glass, kind of open up these different layers and and it's much more interesting. It's a much fuller experience. In order to get that experience, first of all, we need to be more settled to be able to perceive what's happening. If something comes up, let's say an emotional state comes up and we're off and running right away, like what's it going to feel like tomorrow? This is never going to change. What about next week? How am I ever going to explain this to anybody? You know, then we're actually going to lose touch with the experience itself because we've now added a future and a judgment and self-image and all this projection. So the first step of mindfulness is to see if we can just pick up what's going on without all of those add-ons, as we say. And then to see what's happening or be with what's happening, not so much as that um, more complex, compound, seemingly solid way, but just hanging out with what's going on so that we can see different levels, like the glass, to feel all those changing sensations in our arms, slow, or really slowly moving our arm up. You know, you just feel all these different sensations. So the first part of mindfulness is to directly connect to what's happening without adding a million things about the future, about how it's wrong or or whatever it might be. And then to pay attention in a way that we can see things within what's going on, or we can see the change, the nuance, the shading of what's happening. It means taking an interest in our experience instead of judging it or condemning it. Something like that. The important thing to remember about mindfulness is that it's about relationship. It's all about how we're relating to our experience. So I would say, going back to when I was saying, you know, 
the most common response I hear about meditation is, um, I'm so stressed out, I could use some of that. And the thing about the partner, which I often hear, I also hear, I tried meditation once, I failed at it. I couldn't do it because I couldn't stop my thinking, get a blank mind, have only beautiful thoughts. Whatever it, it might be that we might hold as an expectation or an idea of what should happen and, and what shouldn't happen, in fact, mindfulness is not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. That's why it's impossible to have the wrong experience. You can't fail at this based on what's happening for you. So let's say you were in a Burmese monastery, very classical kind of traditional setting for learning mindfulness, and you went in and talked to the teacher about your meditation experience, which they kind of make you do often, and you were really feeling ashamed and upset because all you had to report was, I'm feeling sleepy when I meditate and then I get angry about falling asleep and then I judge myself for having anger and then I get even sleepier after that. That might be considered really, really good meditation depending on how you're relating to the sleepiness and the anger and the judgment and the increased sleepiness. That was maybe the hardest thing for me to learn. You know, where I kept thinking, as one often does, you know, I'm doing it wrong, I'm not having the right experience, this shouldn't be here anymore, you know, I've been practicing for a year, this shouldn't come up anymore, I've been practicing for 10 years, this shouldn't come up anymore, I've been practicing for 30 years, this shouldn't come up anymore. But it's so enormously freeing if we understand that the essence of mindfulness is not about what's happening. It's about how we are with what's happening. So one of the um, shifts that happens, and there are many in being mindful, um, is that we realize the difference between having something come up and acting on it. You can have an enormous wave of anger, say, come up. And you can take an interest in it, and you don't have to blame yourself for what you're feeling, and you don't have to um, carry on about it. And that's, you can really open to it, pay attention to it, learn more about the nature of that feeling which is very different than, I mean, f you know, for us, like going off to the computer and typing out the email and pressing send, only maybe two hours later to go, whoops, you know. <laughs> that was kind of hostile, wasn't it? And I'm told this is still a feature. I haven't tested it lately, but uh, in the early days of AOL, um, for example, if the recipient of your angry, hostile email was also on AOL and they hadn't read it yet, you could press this magic button called unsend 
and it's like something in your computer would reach out and grab it from theirs, and it's like it never was. I actually unsent something to somebody once. It wasn't angry and hostile, but I thought better of it at some point. And she wrote to me and she said, it's so funny, I could have sworn I had an email from you. And I didn't have a chance to read it, and it just disappeared. And I thought, fancy that, how could that be, you know? And it may still be in existence, I'm not sure of that feature, but most of life doesn't provide an unsend button. You know, but there's a huge difference, which we understand, between feeling something and acting on it. And so that's the kind of space that mindfulness gives us. It's an ability to be with anything. Not be afraid of certain feelings or certain experiences. Not to think I have to you know, resent them or blame myself for them if they're you know, negative or painful. But also it gives us the option of not acting on them because we're relating to them differently. So mindfulness is all about relationship. Not about having certain things and not others. The other common comment I get you know, when I'm here in New York City, which I often am, is, you know, it was fine for someone like the Buddha sitting under a tree 2,600 years ago. It's too bad I live in Manhattan where it's so noisy. You know, if there aren't, if there, only there weren't sirens, I could meditate. If only I lived in a quiet, peaceful place, I could meditate. If only I weren't so stressed out, I could meditate. If only I was getting more sleep at night, I could meditate. But in this, in the sense of mindfulness meditation we can look at the stress we can hear the sound differently we can hear the sirens differently and all the attendant emotions that come up we can experience differently because mindfulness is all about how we are with what's going on so that's a tremendous training first of all to be present with our experience to actually feel that glass instead of you know, being off in some zone um, to taste the tea, all of that. But that's just the groundwork for having a different relationship to everything, uh, to take an interest in our experience in a different way, to learn, to learn about change, for example, in a different way. So many elements, there's so many aspects to it the techniques tend to be really simple. Um, everything from uh, sometimes putting a mental label, like just giving voice to a word. Um, joy, hearing, sadness. If something becomes a predominant experience to a lot of physical exercises. Um, one of my friends, for example, one, one of our teachers, this Burmese meditation teacher, often, often would emphasize mindfulness in daily activities. Like, tell me everything you noticed when you drank a glass of water. Which, very commonly, would be nothing. And that would be the end of our meeting. You know, so I would leave and I would do kind of formal sitting meditation as mindfully as I could, formal walking meditation as mindfully as I could. 
And the next time I drank a glass of water, I'd feel the coldness, the hardness of the glass. I'd feel the water as I was sipping it and swallowing. And the next day, um, because this was in the context of a three-month intensive retreat, I'd go in to see him, and before I could say anything, he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. (laughs) So I'd leave, and I'd sit, and I'd walk, and I'd drink water as mindfully as I could in case he went back to that. And then when I washed my face, I'd feel my hands in the water, and I'd feel the water on my face, and I'd go in the next day and tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing. (laughs) So he was, um, at least with me, and he worked with us all quite individually, but uh, that was really his emphasis, and it was fantastic, because it's like everything came alive for me as a part of meditation. So based on that, I have a friend Uh, who decided he was going to uh, choose these daily activities and just try to be mindful during them. Things that wouldn't last long, wouldn't take a whole lot of time each time. So the first one he decided to do was brushing his teeth. And he said that what he noticed right away was that he was holding onto that toothbrush so tightly, it might as well have been a jackhammer about to leap out of his hand and cut off his head. And he began to wonder, I wonder if there are a lot of activities in the day where I use what you might call inappropriate force. You know, where I'm trying too hard, it's too tight. And that became a whole area of investigation for him, looking for balance. So mindfulness reveals a lot to us. And it's all kind of interesting. To be present, to be connected to have a certain relationship to our experience so that we're not chastising ourselves for what's happening, we're not feeling bereft, like this glass of water is not good enough, I need champagne, whatever it might be. And we can, and do, keep learning. We learn so much about all of these experiences because we're actually paying attention. So if concentration as a tool is primarily about that gathering, which is steadying our attention. Mindfulness is about, you could say, refining our attention so that it's not so cluttered. This shouldn't happen. I need more of that. And where's that? Where's the champagne? And, you know, what about this pain? It's going to be worse tomorrow, I'm sure. You know, we kind of unclutter our attention so that we can more readily connect to what's here. Uh, And then the third skill of meditation practice is loving kindness or compassion. But before we go on for that uh, and talk about that, why don't we stretch a little bit and we'll do a sitting, okay? And then for loving kindness, um, I'll give you instructions in walking while doing loving kindness before we break for lunch. So uh, if you want to take a short break, that's fine. Water. Yes, I'm on the bottom. 
Oh, really? Nice and cold, yeah. We can swap them if you want. Yeah. You want to pour that for me? Yeah. All over the webcam. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah, they're big. They're heavy. Nice mala. It's an amamala. It reminds me to try and think clearly. <laughs> That's why I like this one. Thank you. I just came in from Seattle, yeah. Oh, how's that? It's good. Yeah. But it means I'm a little bit of another time zone. Hello. I just want to say hi. I don't know how long you're going to be sitting here. Great. What's there these days? Super voucher. There may not be a series of flops right now. I think Butterflies just reopened. It's not Butterflies. Ooh. And in a bit, like in November, we're having a new exhibit on space and technology. It's always great to see you. Yes, you too. End of August. Great. What was happening? Uh, I just, I just filed a joint grievance with the museum. Sharon, you hear this one, right? Yeah. Four years ago, and it's finally finished. And the funny part about it is I have compassion now for the HR people that are trying to get out of the way. So I kind of feel bad on doing what I'm doing, but I know I need to do it. Yeah. Things are going good. Thanks for having me. Hey. Yeah. How you doing? Uh, the um, Donna Nitra West. Yes, 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 with KD. Yes, great. I just wanted to tell you, I love it so much. Great. It's so inspired me. I want to try to go to Hawaii in Wanda. All right. Please do. I was going to say Kurpalu in March, but Hawaii is even sooner. No, but I'd like to do that. I think yeah. I'd like to do that. It's good for you. That's great. You do. How fabulous. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, how fabulous. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hi. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
Okay, come back. I'd love for a chance for you all to know one another somehow. So we'll have to figure out a structure that will enable that either later this morning or this afternoon sometime. So there's a lot of varied experience and a great deal of wisdom in this room. on the webcam too. It's also interesting in formulating a description for this course. It reminded me of, um, I was doing a, a series of classes on compassion at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. <coughs> and the program director at the time and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we asked everyone to engage in some kind of service project so that when we came together as a group, people could discuss their own reactions and things that came up for them in, in doing this service project. And, but I feel like I missed a, a big part of reality in that people in registering would, would call her and say, well, you know, I'm taking care of my kids or I'm taking care of my parent or I'm doing this already or, you know, I don't really have time to go. And I thought, oh, wow, look how much caregiving is going on in the world. Look how much compassion and activity, like, right in the home, you know, or in one's immediate circle. And so in, in uh, thinking about this 
course, I thought, wow, how many different ways do people have kids in their lives, you know? And it was like this continually expanding terrain, which was, was kind of fantastic. Okay, so we say mindfulness is the key to everything. <laughs> and we practice in a lot of different ways, including... Uh, what we did already, being mindful of the feeling of the breath. And what I would suggest we do for this next sitting is start in just that way where we feel the sensations of the breath. And I'll guide you through another iteration of it. So again, you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And remember, it's just one breath that we want to feel. If you're at the nostrils with the breath, it may be tingling, vibration, warmth, coolness. If at the chest or the abdomen, it may be movement, pressure, stretching, release. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to your hands. See if you can make the shift there from the more conceptual level, like our fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Pulsing, throbbing, pressure. Again, without naming the sensations, but feeling them. And observing how they change. In the same way, feel your feet against the ground without being caught up in feet or ground.
And bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. If images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but they're not all that strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by. The example's given of seeing a friend in a crowd. You don't have to shove aside everybody else and say, go away, you're bothering me. But your interest, your enthusiasm is going, there's my friend, there's the breath. There's the breath. Everything else can come and go. It doesn't matter. There's the breath. But if something comes up that's strong enough to pull your attention away from the breath, it's really kind of compelling. Sensation, sound, emotion, whatever it is, spend a few moments and just recognize it. This is what's happening right now. There's a sound, for example. You don't have to get elaborate. There's a church bell. How do you learn how to play church bells? Maybe I can learn how to play church bells. Just hearing, the hearing. And when you can, just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. That's like home base. Smaller things, we just let them flow by. As we stay connected to the feeling of the breath, the bigger, more intense things, we recognize, we acknowledge, we pay attention to. And then we bring our attention back to the feeling of the breath. And then if you just like drift away, you're gone, you're lost in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. The moment we realize we've been gone is the significant moment where we practice letting go and we practice beginning again.
Remember, no matter how many times you might have to begin again, that's fine. It's not a sign of failure, it's not a problem. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes.
So I got invited to uh, teach a class on mindfulness uh, in a public high school here because they were studying, it was Mindfulness Month or something like that. <laughs> I was the guest speaker and they had a mindfulness coach who was coming in twice a week to teach them. And so I ran into her in the office and I said, how long do you have them sit for? And she said, one minute. And I thought, wow, I hadn't actually been planning on talking that much. So I went in there and I said, I'm really going to challenge you. You're going to sit twice as long as you sat before. So we sat for two minutes. So with that in mind, I've been keeping these sittings relatively short, although they're longer than two minutes. Now, Ambika, uh, if people use a microphone for questions, do I, does that get onto the live stream or do I need to repeat them? Do you know? Then I'll repeat them, since we don't know. It will get onto that. Okay. So we uh, have some time now. If there's anything you'd like to say, anything you'd like to ask, please not about you know how one translates this for four-year-olds, because that'll have to wait till this afternoon. Okay. Anything about your own practice or anything that I said? I'm not sure what that means. Um, and just sort of the, the Buddhist um, way of, you know, I know you've told stories of um, each person is as important of, as another, right, being equal. And then, but I'm not sure if you recall hearing a lot more about that. What, what does that look like, kind of from an experiential point of view? Okay, we'll see if I, see how I do. Uh, the first question was about overwhelming feeling. Um, well, of course, one one uh, further question is what makes it overwhelming? Is it actually the intensity with which a certain feeling is arising? Sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes something is is more overwhelming because. Uh, we are tending to add on to it. You know, this is who I really am. This is what was lurking underneath everything. This is the only thing I am. Um, this will never change. What's it going to be like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? You know, whatever it might be. So that's one area of investigation. Sometimes it's not the add-ons, as I say. You know, when it is, of course, we work to relinquish them. Sometimes it is just the sheer intensity of, of what's coming up. Um, in which case, you know, mostly we work, again, on that same principle of balance, where we're, uh, the idea isn't to sit there and suffer, you know, and kind of grit your teeth and trying to endure something that um, is, is like too much, but to kind of titrate, you know, spend a few moments with that feeling, bring your attention to something that's easier to be with. Sound, or open your eyes, you know, um, 
get a sense of your whole body or whatever it might be, you know, which is sort of a personal exploration. Go back to the feeling if it's still there. Leave it again. Uh, and in that kind of flexibility of attention and elasticity of attention, we learn a lot about, first of all, um, going back to my example of the clouds moving through the sky, we kind of land our sense of who we are more in the sky than in the particular cloud that's happening. We realize, oh, look at that. I can look at this. You know, I can be with this. I can be okay looking at this. There's something in me that's intact. There's something in me that's whole, which is what's watching that really intense, I'm assuming difficult and, you know, kind of complicated feeling. And, and we sort of more reside in that watching than in the uh, than being overwhelmed by the feeling, but only for a very brief period. And then, you know, we need a break, we need a respite, and then we go back to that. So it's, it's just things like that. It's building confidence, building clarity, um, realizing that, like, for example, in the Tibetan tradition, um, I'd always read that there are different kinds of exercises where you you think back maybe to the time in your life when you were the most frightened, the most jealous, the most angry, and you bring it back so the feeling is really strong. So that you can realize, and now I'll translate it into more um, insight language, so that you realize, oh, you know what? I can be mindful of that too. Look at that. I have the capacity to be with this in a different way. Oh, look, I can care about myself. I can be kind to myself even in the face of this. And I was just to read about that, and I think, well, you don't actually have to kind of bring those things up, you know? They sort of come up anyway, you know, so. Uh, but it's an option. It's really, it's like a confidence builder. Look at that. I can do this, I can do that. Uh, and in terms of equality, I mean, I, I th I'm not sure I totally got your question, because I, I don't know that... The, we don't, do you mean equanimity or equality? You mean equality? Um, you have to use the microphone. I, I guess it's, um, I mean, it, maybe it's some of both, but in terms of it's the or conflict situations where people are in, on some level computing resources and uh, whatever that may be. And, um, um, Finding a sense of, in that moment, you know, the equality of my own presence or one's own presence, um, regardless of kind of what's, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the external component of power stuff that you are. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? To you? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I can say something anyway. <laughs> You can see if it. Do you mean like competition or? No, actually, I'm kind of like looking at a little bit lower in 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 those situations where you know, say, regardless of power, I have equal value to in in that participation. Sort of looking at who I am and valuing it as equally as you know the other person, no matter what the logistics of the situation in terms of, you know, work or power or, you know, that kind of thing. And that is a challenge, is that what you're saying? Yeah. 
But I mean, I, I, I mean that part of the reason I think I'm, I'm not quite getting it is because you're. Uh, it's like you know the answer. <laughs> you just said the answer. You know, like is the effort to try to value yourself as much as you value someone else. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, this may be too reductionistic, you know, for what you have in mind, but, I mean, in terms of the teachings, we always look at a couple of things. One is one's motivation, you know, and, um, you know, certainly there, there are places to come from within where we assert our right or we stand on principle or we express our need without being angry or freaked out, you know, but there's a kind of clarity and strength that, we're coming from that's very different than being enraged. Um, and we look at skillfulness of communication. You know, what's actually going to, uh, to the best of our guess, you know, our best of our estimation, going to be most effective in this particular situation. It may not be saying, you're an idiot. You know, it may be, making an effort to express what we need or what we want or where we're drawing a line or, or whatever it is in, in uh, a different way than you're an idiot. You know, but I don't think it's more complex than that. I mean, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's knowing where we're coming from and continually, as, you know, my friend Bob Thurman would say, say it before you get angry. You know, don't wait, like, till you're, like, overcome with anger before you say what you need or what you'd like. You know, say it before then so that you have maybe greater clarity and, and, and so on. And this isn't an answer to your question at all, but uh, it just popped up in my mind because I had a really enlightened cab driver the other night. And... Uh, it was one of the, I was on my way to hear Thich Nhat Hanh speak Friday night, and um, I got into a, a, I hailed a taxi, and it was, uh, you know, his lights were already off, he was, you know, it was going to be his last fare, and he, he stopped for me anyway, asking me where I was going, and I told him, and so he said, yeah, okay, so then we went uptown uh, from where I'd gotten him, and, and, uh, <coughs> got caught in unbelievable traffic. I mean, it was just, it was phenomenal. And really, really, really stuck. And at one point, I said to him, I'm really sorry. You know, I know you took me when you were already basically off duty and it was going to be your last fare, and now this is like forever. <laughs> and he said to me, traffic is not your fault. And he said, nor is it mine. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. Or another, and this was an, a personal moment of enlightenment, uh, but somebody um, said, wrote or said, like if you're stuck in traffic and you're getting really enraged at the traffic, remember, you are the traffic. You know, it's kind of fun to just flip our minds and and see, oh yeah, this is another way of looking at it. Right?
Okay, anybody else? She's going to bring in the microphone. Okay. So it's interesting to me that um, when you said feel regret, I was struck that a lot of times I think of it in terms of notice regret, which has more like a mental tone to it, and it really kind of shifted things like a very different perspective. So I mean, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, did you hear that? I think that, um, you know, commonly I, too, say watch your breath, uh, notice your breath, be with your breath. It's, it's just the conventional way that we describe it, but uh, many times that shift in language is important because many times uh, we are disconnected. And so, for example, um, when, we, when I do walking meditation instruction, it's really going to be about loving kindness. But if you were doing mindful walking with an emphasis on the mindfulness rather than the loving kindness, um, it's really an effort to feel what's happening in your body. And what I've discovered is that for many of us, we have the sense that who we are, our consciousness, resides up here somewhere behind our eyes. And I have taught walking meditation to more than one person who could not feel their feet against the ground till they looked down. And then it was like, oh. <laughs> you know, so I, I virtually always start with bring your attention down. Feel your feet from your feet. And you can all do that right now, just with your feet against the ground. Just feel that shift when you're kind of embodying the awareness. Feel your feet from your feet. And then, of course, we have to do it again and do it again. But it's that connection um, that's really helpful. So when I was writing this last book um, that I wrote, Real Happiness, which has a lot of different meditation exercises in it. At one point, um, the person who was editing it added a line to the walking meditation, something like, uh, feel as though um, your feet are looking back at you. And I thought, that is so weird. <laughs> like, I never say that. And then I tried it, and I thought, ooh, that's right. <laughs> that actually works. You know, so sometimes just the, so I left it in there. So sometimes those little shifts actually do make a big difference. Hello. Here in this country? Or? Yeah, so many people are so in need, um, passionate about yoga, the body, acupuncture, alternative medicine. Meditation is part of it. This, the reason why I'm here bringing it into schools, bringing it into children, bringing it into parenting. Would you share 
anything that comes to mind about this development? Um, I think it's it's pretty exciting, you know. Um, I think that there will be lots and lots of different forms and and uh, <coughs> manifestations, and you know, um, I think uh, you know some people will really try to have like a very uh, deep acquaintance with say meditation practice, you know, the principles and the styles and uh and for other people it won't be that passionate an interest, you know, there there will be more um a utilization of some tools that they find helpful, but it won't be like a a really big um immersion into all those different aspects. And I think that's right. You know, that people will uh, find their place in an entire spectrum of of what's happening. I mean, for me, um, the first thing that came to my mind when you, you asked that was uh, many, many years, and this is not connected to actually what your question was, but uh, many years ago we brought one of our teachers over from India um, and this was a long time ago, and uh, and even there it was kind of even then it was kind of exciting, you know, to see the burgeoning of these different communities and people getting interested in meditation. And uh, so we kind of toured around the country, and then afterwards we we said to him somewhat proudly, you know, like, well, what do you think? Like, what do you think of what's going on? Isn't it great? And and he said, oh, it is great. There's just one thing. <laughs> He said, people in America sometimes remind me of people sitting in a rowboat uh, and rowing and rowing and rowing with great, great earnestness and sincerity, but refusing to untie the boat from the dock. <laughs> and he said, people here seem to want to practice meditation sometimes for these great transcendent experiences or altered states of consciousness, but they don't want to pay that much attention to how they speak to their neighbor or how ethical they are at work or something like that. And he said, it's a seamless process. It's not just an activity you do now and then. It's, you know, bringing these values to life of being mindful, being aware, being present, being kind. All of that is about everything. You know, and so uh, I've never forgotten that, you know, that, that teaching. You know, so that's, that's part of it, too. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you have to wait for the microphone. I'm not sure people can hear you. I think you have to hold it a little. It's on, but you have to just. Yes, it's good. I've been practicing for many, many years. And I am now in a circumstance with an ill brother who is brain damaged. And he's very, very, I'm sorry to get specific details, but I don't know how long. Very averse to my spiritual practice. And I've been helping him for two years plus, and over the last 
six until a big family. There are only two of us helping and there are my brothers and sisters. The level of resentment and dread is arising for the past six months to an almost impossible ability on my part to handle it. And I have noticed that when it gets really hard, it is harder for me to maintain my meditation practice. That I sit and I have to get up. And then I sit again and I have to get up. And I know there's a huge amount of aversion here. Just not wanting to look at the dread of showing up mm -hmm. and then the resentment that arises when I'm with him. And, I, and there's a, it's a, a little scary. And it feels a little bit to me like that story you just told. This is so positive, but I'm still tied to the dog. But I, I would like to be present with him with more kindness in my heart, mm -hmm. kindness toward myself, or my judging that the world is so unfair, or the family is so not practicing. It, it makes me laugh to be told what a good Christian I am and no one else except one other of the Christians is helping. So I believe my question is how to cope, how to deal, how to get back on the cushion, or maybe be more mindful during the day, as you said. You're giving me all these little pointers, but my mind does not want to grasp them. Yeah, well, I, you know, I mean, it's obviously very complex. I mean, we've talked before, you know, and um, it's obviously a very complex situation, part of which... Um, I would I would seek a level of community that is not necessarily meditation based, you know, but is is really going to be supportive in terms of the kind of stress and um, I think pretty natural kind of resentments and things that come up. Let me just finish, okay? And then uh, um, I I think that's very important, actually, and. Uh, to the degree that you're going to try to utilize meditation practice, um, there are a few things, and I think this goes for any stressful situation. Uh, one is, as I was just saying to somebody in uh, that break, um, one of my teachers really emphasized short moments many times. You know, don't think, well, now I'm going to sit for an hour, you know, and have this serene unfolding of, of my experience, like three breaths is a, is a good thing, if we can do that periodically. Um, and then I think you just need to be really creative and experimental even uh, in terms of form. You know, your practice right now is not going to necessarily look like your practice if you were up at the Insight Meditation Society doing a three-month retreat. You know, you don't have that support, you don't have that protection, you don't have the silence, you don't have, you know, uh, the intensity with, like, nothing else to do. you got a lot else to do. Um, it's just not going to look that way, you know. So instead of feeling you're at a loss because of that, um, realizing that this is a time that you need to really uh, remember what practice is about and which is things like balance, starting over, uh, kindness toward yourself as well as toward others, things like that, 
and bring it to life in, in whatever form is going to work. There are plenty of people uh, who do walking meditation, for example, staying within the meditative realm. Rather than sitting for one reason or another, uh, there are people, I mean, one of the stories I tell, um, it's about one of my colleagues, whose name is Kamala, who, um, she tells the story about when one of my teachers from India uh, first came to the States visiting, and, and she was living in Hawaii, and he, somehow he ended up staying in her house. And at the time, she was a single mother with three kids and two jobs, and Manindra, as a meditation teacher would, it's almost like a, a guild promise or, or something like that code, he said to her, you need to sit every day. And, and she said, no way. Like, there's no way in the world I have time to sit every day. So he said, what do you think you do each day at home more than anything else? And she said, wash dishes. So they went over the sink, and he taught her washing dishes meditation. And that was her first practice, was literally was washing dishes, you know, feeling her hands in the water, you know, feeling the motion, trying to come back to the moment for that activity. And then subsequent to that, she said he, he noticed there's a corridor. There was a corridor in her house, like between her bedroom and the living room or something, where she had, like, a little bit of space, and that was her walking meditation area. You know, that's how she started practice, because that's what was real, and that what was, that's what was relevant to her at that time, to kind of return to the moment, take a break from the, you know, responsibilities and the, you know, everything else that's going on and the stress. So it's going to be things like that, I would bet you know, that, that you need to do. But I'd also really urge the other. Yeah. One of the reasons I was specific, but I also want to be broad, is that I know every single one of us in this room has some place we mm -hmm. going to, mm -hmm. or some human being, even it's family and all that. But, but the, the dreading and resentment issue is, is such a powerful, powerful force that comes up so unexpectedly. That's what I am surprised yeah. about. That I will fear myself. I will sit a little. I will go, and in a matter of a second, I will see him. And boom. Yeah. Well, I mean, here I, I'm, I'm going to go on to discuss loving kindness briefly, and then we'll take a break for lunch. But I, I would really um, urge you and everybody, you know, um, in the realm of wisdom. You know, it, it goes back, I think, to what I was talking about before, which is we cannot control what arises in our minds. Everything depends on how we relate to it. And when I said that mind, the difference between my, the one of the effects of mindfulness is that it allows us to see the difference between feeling something even very intensely and acting on it. And if we can remember that and have, you know, basic resolves not to cause harm, not to hurt, and so on, so that we're not just, like, sending that email every time we feel like it, you know, or, or acting out on the resentment in a way that's very unconscious or kind of, um, you know, mindless, 
that also in a way functions to give us more permission to feel what we're feeling and not to be afraid of that feeling and not to think, wow, I've been meditating for 40 years. What am I still doing with all this resentment? Or, you know, I've spent $50,000 in therapy just in the last three years. Why do I still have anger? Or, you know, it's n that's not the point um, to add shame and blame and dread to our dread and things like that. But to understand that we have the tools, we have the capacity if we train in those tools to be with anything. And so think about capturing all that energy you might expend in saying, I shouldn't feel this, why do I feel this, this is wrong, you know, how humiliating, I'm practicing for 40 years, I still have, you know, anger come up, this is all bad, and, you know, capturing all that energy into all kinds of things, letting the feeling wash through you being more compassionate to yourself because you have that kind of resentment. Understanding the nature of compassion, which doesn't mean giving in, uh, but not adding, you know, lots of elements of resistance and resentment. Realizing how easy it is to lose control. I mean, one of the things that... Um, I've often said um, is that I've been waiting, I mean, many of you have heard me say it, I've been waiting for someone to invent a machine that will amplify our thoughts so that we could plug in one person per meditation session and the rest of us could just listen to what's going on in someone's head. There's a lot, right? I think we're actually getting closer. I don't totally understand the science, but I keep reading like, now they can do this, now they can do that. And I think, ooh, we're getting closer. But short of that, we can have an understanding that this is kind of the nature of things. We can't control what comes up, but we can be very different with it. And so right there, you know, you have the opportunity to do some work, which, how, you know, it's hard, of course, but it's also amazing. You know, it's creative, it's possible, it's important because then we look at others and it's not from a feeling of, I could never do what they're doing, you know, because we see, ooh, right, I had kind of that impulse, didn't I? Or that level of fear or that level of rage or that level of resentment. I kind of did, didn't I? I didn't act on it. But look at that. And as I also go on to say sometimes, you know, it's like, it seems to me that from a perspective of wisdom, the single most illogical feeling we could have about someone is a sense of self-righteousness. You know, like I, who am so perfect, am looking at you way over there who did that terrible thing, which I could never, ever, ever do, because guess what? You know, even absent that machine, it doesn't take that much introspection to notice, whoa, <laughs> that is a lot going on, right? And we don't act on every impulse. That's another fantasy I have that someday we'll have like meditation session where everyone will sit with their eyes open and we'll have 
one designated person, they don't even have to be a volunteer, they could be assigned, who's going to act out every impulse that comes up in their mind in the course of that sitting, and the rest of us will just watch. It'd be like, wow, you looked so calm, but, you know, like, who knew you wanted to do that? It would be a lot for any one of us. You know, and so we realize, oh, look at that. We, you know, we can care about one another and we can understand, we can have that, that kind of sensibility instead of feeling so separate in that way. Okay, so I want to uh, talk just a little bit about loving kindness, which is that third great skill. Um, when I went to that class uh, in the public high school, um, to teach mindfulness. The mindfulness coach said at one point, we sat for two minutes and we went around the room and heard what everyone's experience was. And um, she said at one point that I was, uh, she told the class whom she'd you know, been visiting for uh, some time, she told them I was an expert in heartfulness meditation. Uh, which was the way she phrased loving kindness. Then they were really excited because I was like an expert, you know. <laughs> I had come to their class and um, it was really sweet. Uh, it turned out that their gym class has been taken over by a yoga program, so they do yoga and they um, do some heartfulness meditation at the end of yoga. Uh, loving kindness, which is what we tend to call it classically, <laughs> Or compassion is is a whole is considered a whole skills training, and this is different than the way we might normally think of compassion or, or loving kindness or love in the West. I found you know it seems uh, it's just different. You know sometimes people think thinking of it as a training is too mechanistic and and strange. I don't know if it's that we tend to think of those qualities more as gifts, and if we have them, we're in luck. If we don't have them, we're out of luck or just a kind of immediate emotional response. But from an Eastern point of view, say Buddhist psychology, absolutely these things are considered trainings because they too rest on the quality of attention. The, the love, the loving kindness, the compassion, the heartfulness we can touch in on will depend on how we're paying attention. So uh, what do we pay attention to is one question. If we're looking at ourselves, say at the end of the day and almost in a kind of evaluation, like how did I do today, do we tend to only remember what went wrong, what we didn't say right, what we didn't express so perfectly? So much so that our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be just collapses around that really stupid comment we made somewhere, like at the meeting at lunch. And if so, if we have that kind of collapse, the training and attention that we do would be almost like asking ourselves, anything else happened today? Like anything good? Not to pretend and not to enter some kind of phony world, you know, it's not like insisting, wasn't that a brilliant, witty thing I said at lunch at that meeting? Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences for that. But that's not all that we are ever. So it's that collapse that we're challenging as we extend to looking for the good. 
So what we end up with is actually a much more realistic perspective than that collapse. And, and then part of the attention training is very much who do we pay attention to and who do we ignore? Who becomes the other? When I was, um, uh, I go to Washington DC once a month pretty much um, for a, a sitting group, but I also go every now and then uh, uh, once or twice a year for like a day-long workshop. And uh, for a long time, the organization, Insight Meditation Community of Washington that organizes those day-long workshops was renting an elementary school. It was the weekend, so it was available. And, and that was um, a place where I taught many times. And, and uh, that school had what they called rules of kindness, which were papered all over the walls and the corridors. So needless to say, I was fascinated by the rules of kindness. And uh, my favorite one of these many rules was everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play. And I thought, what a different world it would be if we just had that one value. Everybody gets to play. No one left out. So one of the things we do in this attention training is we notice who do we leave out? Who is insignificant? Who is the other? Who do we disdain? Sometimes because of prejudice or bias, but sometimes just by indifference. We just look right through somebody. We don't even notice them. And so we train our attention to actually include rather than exclude, to pay attention rather than ignore. My favorite example of that these days is a friend of mine wrote a book, um, and he uh, used to live in the same neighborhood here in New York City that I have a, a sublet apartment in, and he's since moved, but um, at the time he was writing the book, he still lived there. And he used this example in the book. He said uh, he would tend to go into this corner grocery store, this convenience store, and there would tend to be the same woman working behind the counter who he said he felt that kind of indifference toward, you know, looking right. He had a vague impression of her being somewhat sullen, but um, mostly he, he realized to his shock, as he put it, that for all he really noticed her, she could have been a cash register with arms. And I loved that phrase because I knew exactly what he was talking about. So he said he went into the store determined to pay much more complete attention to her. And he said the first thing that he noticed was that she was kind of singing along to this um, song that was playing on the radio and that she actually had an exquisitely beautiful voice. So he said to her, wow, you have a really beautiful voice. And he said, she just lit up. It's like she beamed at him. So I read that, and I knew the store, and I knew just who he was talking about, so I thought, I'm going to go in there. <laughs> and I thought it would be like totally paranoia-making for me to say, I read you have a really beautiful voice, right? Because like, what is that about? But I felt like I could go in there and say, well, I heard you have a really beautiful voice. 
So I went in there determined to say that and have her beam at me and like make her all happy. And, and I walked in and she was already beaming. Something else had made her happy. And I realized, wow, how much of her do I miss myself, you know, just like from not paying attention. That's the training in loving kindness and compassion. It doesn't mean we like everybody. It doesn't mean we approve of them. It doesn't mean we give in to their actions and say it doesn't matter. But there's just a kind of sense of connection that's different because we're paying attention. The connection is already there, in fact. That's the nature of things. It's the nature of reality. Did you see the movie Contagion? Um, I went to see it, and uh, it's like the painful side of interconnection. You know, it's like someone had a bad day in Hong Kong, and by day 24, half the earth is wiped out. You know, and it's realistic. I mean, it happens. It could happen. You know, and so the truth of our lives is that we're all connected, however alone or cut off we might feel. And so by paying attention, we actually notice what is, like it or not, that our lives have something to do with one another, that what happens to someone else matters to me. What I do matters because my actions ripple out. And so that's really the, the flavor and the nature of, of loving kindness. We practice it even in like that first exercise we did when I said let go and begin again. That's an act of loving kindness and compassion for ourselves because there's nothing easier in that moment than to just go off on a litany of blame. I'm an idiot. I'm so bad. I'm the only one thinking. No one else in this room is thinking. They're all sitting here in bliss. They're all sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. I know they are. I read that somewhere. That's just supposed to happen in meditation. They're all perfectly happy. I'm the only one who's thinking. Well, maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking wonderful thoughts. I'm the only one who's thinking about why is this elevator so slow. I don't know why I'm thinking that. I'm not in charge of the elevator. And anyway, I already figured it out in the last sitting just why the elevator is so slow. And, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. But it's just like, oh, I'm an idiot. Here I am. I'm thinking again, right? So by doing that, not only do we add sometimes tremendously to the length of time of our distraction, but it's so demoralizing. It's so exhausting. It's a tremendous development in loving kindness and compassion to let go, to begin again. And, of course, there are lots of methods and, and styles of meditation practice that are specifically devoted to the strengthening and deepening of these particular qualities. And so um, one is just the, the practice of loving kindness meditation where instead of gathering our attention around the feeling of the breath, we gather our attention around the silent repetition of certain phrases. Very simple phrases like, may I be happy, may you be happy. May I be peaceful, may you be peaceful. Things like that. So uh, I'm going to give you some suggestions for doing that in walking meditation. And then we'll take the lunch break, during which time I really hope you do get to do some of that kind of walking meditation. Uh, and there will be uh, a sitting that will happen here um, after the first hour of the break, in case you want to 
come back and, and do a sitting, okay? So walking meditation, doing loving kindness. The first things I'll say are really should be obvious, like eyes open. Um, you can walk at a normal pace, please do, if you're out on the street. Um, and then this is the silent repetition of certain phrases. I once, I was teaching in Berkeley at a yoga center and we had to do our walking meditation all day out on the streets and after the first walking session somebody came back in and I realized either I had not been clear enough or she'd misunderstood because she said, well, I saw this group of people on the corner and I worked up all my courage and I went up to them and I said, may you be happy. And I thought, well, at least it's Berkeley, you know? Like, <laughs> but like, let's not try it here. Okay? So then another technical point. It's a very light awareness on these phrases. You obviously want to be aware of everything going on around you, you know, and uh, what all's happening. But you have a touchstone. You have something to return to with this light attention. So what I would suggest in doing the loving-kindness walking meditation is that you primarily rest your attention on phrases for yourself. It's just two or three or four phrases. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. Something like that. Sometimes people get hung up in the phrasing, like may I or may you. Sounds too much like uh, pleading or imploring. It's not meant to be like that. Um, my friend Sylvia Borstein has told me it's the hortatory subjunctive part of speech. And she said it's like you hand someone a birthday card and you say, may you have a happy birthday. May you have a great new year. That's the kind of energy of it. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Okay, so you're walking along, normal pace, eyes open, gently repeating the phrases, resting your attention on them. And then if someone comes strongly into your consciousness, someone walks by, you hear a bird, you hear a dog, you see a bug, something like that, just quickly include them. Like, oh, be happy. See what happens. And then just return your attention to the phrases toward yourself. It's quite fun, because you never know. Maybe you're afraid of dogs. There's the dog. Be happy. See what happens. Okay, and as with every technique, always the core skill of it is being able to begin again. Because your attention will go far, 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 far away. Sometimes many, many times. It's okay. You just realize that, you let go, you start over. Okay, so we're going to have an hour and a half now. Um, my clock says 12.15, and uh, that means we'll have a sitting up here that begins at 1.15. And um, I'm sure many of you probably brought food uh, and... I don't know where people can eat. Maybe everywhere. Here, here you are. You'll tell us.
yeah, you can take the stairs and feel free to eat your lunch in, in this main room. Please, no trace. The staircase is open. You can take the stairs. Um, and at 1.15, if you're in this room, we're going to ask you to be silent, okay? So that you can uh, have the sitting. It doesn't have to be during lunch, but by 1.15, I'd like people to be uh, at 1.15 if they could be silent. No, they're coming back if they want. We're, we're starting at 1.45. Okay. But if, I don't know, will you be here at 1.15? Yeah, but will you be here at 1.15 or not? Okay. Yeah, so if someone could just ring the bell at 1.15 in case I'm not back and say, okay, now we're going to have a half hour sit. <laughs> Hi. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.